Good evening. So I know you've been talking. <laughs> I heard you. And uh, I hope that uh, you saw what uh, awaits you out there. <laughs> After this beautiful silence, now entering into uh, the world of relationship. And uh, that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, is how we move from this beautiful place that we have been cultivating, that we have actually entered into as a, as a place, a, a container of our practice, all of the 35 years of practice that has gone before in this beautiful place uh, has held us. And, uh, and in a way, we've just entered the stream of that practice. And that's what we've been doing for six days. We've just been in the stream of the practice that has been going on for 35 years. And it's a very beautiful thing. And I know that uh, in this time of a retreat, it becomes very poignant. It certainly, that's been my experience on the eve of going home. And it's poignant because we, certainly for me, in those experiences, I've, it's been poignant because I kind of yearn for some of the time back. Right. I think those moments of, that I was cultivating mindlessness, <laughs> that perhaps if I had them back and could really have used them a little bit better. And then the thought comes, how will I, how will I take what I've learned, what I've seen, and bring it into life in a way that informs my life? And that also, um, it, it informs my life in such a way that I'm, I'm uh, strengthening the practice. And yet I know that um, the intensity that we have in, uh, in, in retreat, the intensity that we've built here, will surely dissipate as we go into um, a life of relationship and family obligations and family relationships and responsibilities and jobs or joblessness and all of the concerns uh, that we have personally. And not only the concerns that we have personally, but the concerns that we have for our world that we're living in a world that feels particularly fragile right now. That economically, uh, there is incredible injustice. That ecologically, the earth is threatened. And so how are we to, uh, to take what we've learned, to take the fruits of the practice that we have done these past few days and help, uh, and help the world, help ourselves, help the world, and continue to build minds of awareness and presence and hearts of openness and loving kindness, gentleness, minds of clarity, wisdom, and hearts of compassion. How do we do that? So perhaps we'll uh, reflect on that tonight, and maybe there will be some answers, and we'll see how they are. I brought just to, to start with um, 
favorite cartoon from The New Yorker. It's a picture of two people sitting on a sofa watching, a tele watching television. And it says, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to self? That's how it is, isn't it, in, in, our, in our world. We um, have all of these opportunities for collaboration and we turn them into competition. And so how can we, how can we reconcile where we are with where we will be tomorrow? A wealthy businessman said to the Buddha, I see you are the awakened one, and I would like to open my mind to you and ask your advice. My life is full of work. I employ many people who depend on me to be successful. However, I enjoy my work and like working hard. But having heard your followers talk of the bliss of a hermit's life and seeing you as one who gave up a kingdom in order to become a homeless wanderer and find the truth, I wonder if I should do the same. I long to do what is right and to be a blessing to my people. Should I give up everything to find the truth? The Buddha replied, the bliss of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling to it and use it wisely, then you will be a blessing to people. It's not wealth and power that enslave us, but the clinging to them. My teaching does not require anyone to become homeless or resign the world unless he wants to, but it does require everyone to free himself from the illusion that he is a separate, permanent self, and to act with integrity while giving up grasping for pleasure. And whatever people do, whether in the world or as a recluse, let them put their whole heart into it. Let them be committed and energetic. And if they have to struggle, let them do it without envy or hatred. Let them live not a life of self, but a life of truth. And in that way, bliss will enter their hearts. So what we have discovered as we have sat and walked and practiced with the wishes and the phrases of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity, sympathetic joy, is that we can nurture and bring forth and cultivate these qualities in our mind-heart that come through our retreat practice. And we've been talking all week about the fact that these qualities are innate, that they don't have to be acquired, that they don't have to be so much gotten as, but that they are already natural to our being. And as we, as we have seen over these days, uh, they can be developed. And they do, don't have to be lost as we return to our daily lives of work and family and play. We may feel knocked about by the barrage of uh, the constant barrage of bad news and of overwork and despair when we go back into our lives. We work more hours than our bodies and that our, and our psyches can stand. We may deceive ourselves about the very po nature of possibility 
and the openings for change. We may get stuck in postures of despair or cynicism or find ourselves caught up in a rigid relationship to time. You know, we're always rushed and busy and overdoing or in or to our responsibilities in our relationships. We live in a society where more is more and more is better, where our long-term vision is sometimes sacrificed for immediate and inadequate gains. And as I said from that cartoon, we, our opportunities for collaboration get uh, mired in competition. We may be anxious about scarcity or the sense of the world uh, in despair and in need. And all of that can serve to disconnect us from our own internal sources of wisdom and spaciousness and vision. And it's not that uh, these tendencies are wrong or we make ourselves wrong because we notice them in our uh, psychological makeup, but they are limiting if we don't use what we've learned with a more holistic and uh, revolutionary approach. We have learned how to be spacious. We have learned how to be kind to ourselves and to others. We have learned how to be compassionate. Even if you think that not much has been going on during this week for you, you will see as you enter back into the stream of, of your daily life that you have learned. This is an email that Sharon and I received from someone who was in a retreat that we taught together a couple of weeks ago who was a rank beginner. She had not um, practiced uh, before she came to this retreat. She said, I just had to share this with you. Tonight I was the recipient of a road rage rant in a parking lot. This was the day after she left the retreat. I'm relatively new to meditation. I was the one who approached you to find out whether it was okay to just practice metta since mindfulness meditations were giving me nightmares. <laughs> My son ran up to me in the market to say that some maniac was spewing all sorts of invective outside the farmer's market and demanding that I come out to the car immediately. So immediately I thought of you and how peaceful and calm I felt after four days of meditating and Dharma talks. When I came home yesterday, my husband said, it's so nice to see you so grounded. That's a first, she said. Before I even saw this woman, I began to silently wish her happiness and ease, etc. I just couldn't help but smile by the time I saw her eyes blazing and smoking pouring from her ears. As soon as she started screaming, apparently I had parked slightly askew in the snow, invading her personal parking space. I gave her a warm smile and said, I am so sorry. <laughs> My usual MO would be to fight back, defend, explain, engage, etc. Nothing I said could assuage her, and I just instinctively knew that I had no control over her actions or reactions. I just let go and kept smiling, which of course infuriated her. <laughs> but I was just so happy to be able to recognize my mistake and express authentic remorse without wallowing in guilt for the next six months over what an inconsiderate Parker I am. As she continued to vent her spleen, I kept smiling as I moved my car and wished her well. She actually sped away, still calling me every name in the book. Thank God my son is 16 and has already heard them all. And we had a good laugh all the way home. 
the woman had actually said to him, I hope she's not the one teaching you to drive. <laughs> and then she, um, she talks about going to help with her father-in-law also, who had, um, was paranoid, schizophrenic, and Alzheimer's. And she said, um, I accepted that I had no control over the outcomes, and I felt so much more patient and loving towards him. May you all be happy and at peace. So th this was a, a beginner. And um, that was four days of practice. So, so we disconnect. You know, we disconnect from our bodies and from our environments and from our emotional worlds and from people around us. And we may even feel incapable of um, functioning in deep intimacy with others. And so we protect ourselves from the armor of, for, with, I'm sorry, with armor and with, uh, all kinds of ways that we try to protect our hearts. And we, we armor ourselves with anger and denial and self-neglect and abuse, all so that we can protect ourselves from depression and disenchantment and discouragement that we fear might overwhelm us if we gave it space. But our strategies emanate not so much from our wisdom or from our spaciousness, but from a place of our own suffering. So it's vital that we use the tools that we have been given here, that we have been practicing and developing, to see our own suffering, to have some ongoing relationship with the internal pain that has immeasurable impact on the people around us and the work we do and on our own happiness. Because if we're not healthy, we can't think clearly. And if we are divide, uh, denying, suppressing, and avoiding what is actually coming up in our own lives, we can't be healthy. And if we're only working out of anger, we produce the energy and the momentum of destruction. And if our visions of the world are not based on wisdom and presence and kindness, then they cannot possibly be good guides for action. We know the, uh, the channels or the currents that run in our hearts that lead uh, that lead us into these places of difficulty. We've seen in our society that greed leads to unjust economic systems and distrust of others and the using of individuals as units of um, uh, productivity and factors of production and exploitation. We've seen how hatred leads to violence and oppression and war and abuse. And we've seen how delusion in the, in the news and the media and the advertisements, the whole popular culture that we're constantly bombarded with promote a sense of individualism and isolation, the overconsumption on both a national and an individual level. And we're all familiar with these forms of coll collective suffering. And we know that this collective suffering comes because it, it, it's, a, it's a projection of our own, uh, of these currents in our own minds onto the world stage. And yet, despite all of that, we know that human beings have access to a wellspring of wisdom 
and goodwill and compassion. You've probably seen that even if you've just had flashes of it in your own practice this week. So how do we transform? How do we use what we have learned to transform our relationship to our society and our world? First, we must see what kind of transformation we're seeking. We want freedom and we want the best that that we as human beings have to offer to ourselves and to our fellow beings and our earth. We want wisdom and truth and joy. We have a complex intelligence and kindness in our hearts. And we know that as we've been developing these muscles this week, we can bring them to bear in our daily life. The most important aspect, I think, of bringing this this practice, this development, this bringing forth that we have been doing into daily life is to look at the way in which we respond, the way in which we respond to the suffering that we find in our world. And we can focus on our, we we see the suffering, we know that there is suffering, we know that the suffering is caused by this, these uh, forces in the mind of in the mind and hearts of human beings, and we can begin to use the practices that the 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 fruit of the practices that we've done to focus on our response to suffering. What is our response to suffering? What is it going to be when you see it? We have responsibility, or If you look at the word responsibility, it's an ability to respond. We have this good heart that we've developed and we can express it in how we respond to the world around us. And we can take responsibility for our ability to respond. We can take refuge by acting on it and by not being lost in fear and horror but doing what we can. And we, um, there is no one else who is uh, charged with the responsibility for responding. We are the ones who are charged with the responsibility. We can't look to, to say it should be the other person, it should be someone else. It is us who need to respond. There's a story about a person who died and went to heaven. And it said he complained to God that the world's a mess, right? People are suffering, there are wars, there are earthquakes. And he said, you should be doing something about it. And God said, I did, I made you. So it's not to put responsibility outside of ourselves, but to see where is our ability to respond? What is our response? After um, 9-11, I had been uh, registered for a three-month retreat here at at, uh, IMS. And uh, I decided to go. I thought that probably one of the best responses that we could possibly have to such a tragedy was to to uh, purify our own hearts. And I understood that we could either respond internally or we could respond externally. And of course, at the time, the, the, uh, the retreat started, I think, on September the 13th. And at the time, we really weren't completely sure of what was happening or what was going on. 
but yet it felt as if that was a beautiful way to respond to what had happened. But then there was another way of responding, and that was uh, people headed towards, I'm, I'm from New York, I, I, I live in New York, a, a little out of the city, but um, I, I spent a lot of years living in the city. And so I headed north, but many people headed south, headed towards ground zero. And this uh, friend of mine was one of those people who went to ground zero, and he wrote um, a letter about his, op- his uh, experience there. talks about getting into the ground zero, and then he said as he arrived there, we climbed and stood at the top of the hill without moving for nearly 30 minutes. As I watched in stillness, the words that came to me were, oh, this is how it is. This is who I am. This is the way the world is. This is the way of life and death. This is the nature of things. Everything that is created comes and goes, comes together and falls apart, everything. All of history seemed to be there, visions of ancient civilizations rising and falling flashed through my mind, and I had an intense awareness of both the preciousness of human birth and the fleeting nature of life. I felt grief for those who had died and for the families who would live on without them but I also felt a deep sense of hurt for the continuing ignorance and insanity of the human race. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But nothing was missing. My mind just stopped or seemed to drop away. And in this seeing, it was as if everything was present as vast open space. It was as if love and hate, life and death, the inner and outer, all experience, moved as an infinite space of consciousness. There was only seamless, empty, silent, vast, loving light on top of the hill of rubble amidst all the sadness and loss. It was as if a veil had parted and revealed a luminous, loving presence that had been hidden but was always there. I turned to Paige, her, his, his wife, and asked her what her experience was. Complete stillness, she responded. We remained standing a while longer, and then he goes on to say what he, what he did. Now, this was after he had, he had just returned from a retreat when uh, 9-11 happened, a week before. So that was a way of responding to what is difficult, to what is horrific, to what is really hard through the training of a mind that's spacious and, uh, and sees clearly. How do we respond? What wells up inside when we are faced with uh, suffering, the, the difficulties of life? Perhaps horror or distress or fear, strong feelings. But we can be present so that wisdom can mature and grow and we can be honest about having those feelings. Because our practice of mindfulness, our practice of metta, those practices are not practices encouraging us to get rid of or to, to become someone else, because in some ways that would be a fundamental aggression towards ourselves. But actually to know how to be present with whatever is true in our experience. Because if we're, if we're not honest and we can't be honest about having the feelings that we have, then they're off stage directing our show and keeping us paralyzed and complaining.
And when we complain, it can detract us from finding a place where we can act in the world. God said to this person, it's up to you to do something. So we can look at our feelings and see that they're workable with our practice of mindfulness and our practice of metta, whatever is coming up in our, uh, in our daily life practice, we can actually turn to and see that we can have compassion and not let anger and rage and fear have the upper hand. But turn to the strong sense of presence that becomes uh, like a strong muscle the more we practice. That as we practice over week, days and weeks and months and years, that muscle for presence begins to become really strong. And in that way, we can stay present wisely for emotions that can be very strong. We spend years cultivating and developing ourselves to, do, to be ready to do what's necessary. This is from a friend of mine who uh, wrote this when she was in um, hospice care. This was a few years ago. She said, in my years of practice, I've spent many hours sitting with aversion to unpleasant body sensations. As I now sit with my distended belly, what I see that every itch I, is that every itch I didn't scratch, every tickle in my throat I didn't cough, and every throb on my forehead from a migraine that I didn't rub has served me well. I have developed, cultivated a muscle for bearing witness, being a mirror to unpleasant body sensations. The more I continue in this way, the more peaceful I have become. There is no separation the unpleasant body sensations and peacefulness are seamless. She died um, a few weeks after writing that, but it was very inspiring to me because I thought, look at that. After all of these years of cultivating this uh, muscle of presence, this ability to just be present for what is arising, to see its nature, to know intimately what it's like to feel unpleasant body sensations. That this is a, a training. This is a way in which we train for life's experiences, even, um, even a, a life-threatening illness and the, uh, the pain of it. So we spend years cultivating and developing ourselves to be ready to do what's necessary. And that's the power of this practice. So that we can face situations of small distress, such as someone shouting at us in a parking lot, or situations of great distress, where we are faced with our own mortality we can face them with peace. And that's what we've been training to do. We're training for times when things are overwhelming and challenging. Because if we're not training when things are not so overwhelming and challenging, although I know that some of us here do have very challenging life issues, It happens sooner or later. Loved ones die, or our own death may be painful. So when people ask, why sit with uh, pain on retreat? Why sit with physical pain? We, you know, we can change our posture. There, be, there may be wise reasons for developing that muscle. There may be wise reasons for not staying with it, and there may be also wise reasons for staying with it. 
because we're training to learn about our reactions and our thoughts and our beliefs. So many things go on that magnify our suffering. So if we, as we've been doing, taking a safe situation and staying with it and investigating it and seeing how we add to it, we make uh, stories about what may happen in the future. You know, as I think one of either Sharon or Mark, I don't remember who, um, quoted Mark, Mark Twain who said, some of the worst disasters in my life never happened, right? We tend to magnify our suffering by building it into the future and seeing what's going to happen. So if we see how we, can, how we do that, and if we see if there's a time when it's not optional, we may be able to stay with it in a more calm and peaceful way. If we have built the muscle under circumstances that are not extreme or dire, then when the vicissitudes of life hit us, then that muscle will have been built. So that's what we've been doing here. We've really been preparing ourselves for life as uh, we live it. So in terms of responding to the, uh, to the suffering of the world, there are two directions. One is external, where we try to meet it out there. We, we see what is necessary and we have an appropriate response. And the other is internal, where we move in. So if we have just a neighbor in distress, we go and help. We cook. We go to the grocery, we do whatever is necessary. Compassionate response, wise response, loving and kind response, response of presence is not just a good idea. For most people, it's innate in the heart and not to allow it to come forth when it's aroused diminishes ourselves, does violence to ourselves limits ourselves. So what we've been learning is how to allow these, this response to come forth. And we, because we know uh, when this response is uh, necessary, if we've trained ourselves in presence, we've trained ourselves to see clearly what is happening and then to have an appropriate response. And we can know that the response is appropriate if the seeing is clear. If the seeing is clear, then we know we're responding appropriately because we know exactly what the situation is. If the seeing is not clear, if we, have, if we are not um, totally present and we are augmenting the situation with stories and ideas about what may happen or relating it back to some other situation that has happened and passed away, but we are still churning with it, then we're not re responding appropriately. We're actually responding to some other situation other than the one that's in front of us. When we're not numbing ourselves or shutting ourselves down, something healthy and beautiful flows through us that appropriate response can be truly beautiful. It's said, I think, the, uh, I read somewhere, although I can't remember where, that um, when there's a compassionate response, the uh, chemical oxytocin is released in our bodies. For instance, when mothers are nursing. And that oxytocin actually physically soothes and calms us. So when we're compassionate, we want to soothe and calm the person who is suffering. So we can't do it out of fear and anxiety. If we do so, then our presence is not so helpful. So even physical response is powerful. 
with the compassionate uh, response. And the ability to be compassionate, the ability to respond appropriately to suffering depends on how well we know ourselves and how well we can deal with our own reactions. And we, we actually respond because we understand that there is no separation, that, the, that we are all connected, that the world is an intricate web in which we all, uh, to which we all contribute and by which we are all affected. This is from Thomas Merton. He, he writes about um, being at the corner of Fourth and Walnut in Louisville and suddenly realized that he loved everyone and that nobody was totally alien to him. It was a moment of luminosity or a moment of awakening for him. And he says, that he had been separating himself out because he was monastic and that he, he thought that he was now seeing that the conception of separation from the world that we have in the monastery too easily presents itself as a complete illusion, that we become a different species of spiritual people, people of interior life, or what have you, he says. And then he said he, he realized that, um, he's, that he's, not in, he's not entitled anymore to, to think that the secular is separate or different from him. Though out of the world, he says, we are in the same world as everybody else. The world of the bomb, the world of race hatred, the world of technology, the world of mass media, big business, revolution, and all the rest. And then he says, my solitude is not my own, for I see now how much it belongs to everyone and that I have a responsibility for it in their regard, not just in my own. It is because I am one with them that I owe it to them to be alone and when I am alone, they are not they, but my own self. There are no strangers. Then he said, it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach. The core of their reality. The person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose, he says, the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. As we practice these beautiful practices, we know that it's a movement inward. We know that we have been practicing in this inward way. But in, in the texts, especially the text um, in which the Buddha, that, that uh, records the, the discourse that the Buddha uh, gave on the establishment of mindfulness. 
the practitioner is exhorted to uh, be aware internally, to be aware externally, and to be aware internally and externally. And neither one of those three sets is given priority. So that even if we are working from a place of quiet and stillness and solitude, and then we are now um, moving, transitioning into a place of uh, busyness and externality and responsibility, both are equally important. It's not that one is better than the other. In the movement inwards, we're given skills and understanding and strength to do inner work. Then, as it says in one of the Zen uh, texts, it says, we go into the world with gift-bestowing hands after doing this work. There's a mutuality, not only in the interconnectedness of all beings and all things in the universe, but also that practice within is a support for practice without. Receptivity for the world without is support for going within. And so they support and depend upon each other. They go together. There are many ways in which we may be subjected to the despair of a world that somehow sometimes seem as if it's gone mad. But there are many ways in which we can express this good-heartedness. Many ways in which there can be expressions of goodwill. And it's important, and we've seen it, we've seen it despite all of the ways in which our country seems fragmented politically and uh, difficult sometimes to love. What we've seen how when there is tragedy or when there's difficulty in the world, we all come together to help. We saw it with Haiti. We saw it with the tsunami a few years ago in Asia. People come together to express that heart of goodness. And we can be inspired by that. And we can find inspiration in our own hearts also to respond rather than to complain. We can find a way to bear all of the difficulties of, the, of this life, knowing that uh, there's not an us and them. Even when we look out and we see that there are um, terrible things happening in the world. This is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Each of us has love and hatred within us. The more we can be aware of how our own anger and ill will colors our thoughts, words, and actions, the greater the chance for real transformation within ourselves. That transformation can lead to genuinely understanding how the confusion of an individual or a group could create greater pain and sorrow for themselves and others. When we can see that the real villain is ignorance, we can stop demonizing the other side. Then our words and our actions, based in clarity and compassion, minus the hate, will be more effective and be part of a larger transformation in human consciousness. We have been given a great gift, the gift of mindfulness, the gift of metta, the gift of compassion, gift of mudita and the gift of equanimity. 
And so I'll close with this, these words from Rachel Naomi Raymond. She says, perhaps real wisdom lies in not seeking answers at all. An answer we find will not be true for long. An answer is a place where we can fall asleep as life moves past us to its next question. After all these years, I have begun to wonder if the secret of living well is not in having all the answers, but in pursuing unanswerable questions in good company. You have been great company. Thank you. Let's sit for a moment. As you sit, feel gratitude in your own heart for the practice that you have done. And see if there is some way in which you can offer it as you, as we go out into the world tomorrow. If there is a way in which we can offer it as a gift to the world. It is a gift to ourselves, and in that way, it's a gift to the world. Because everything we are and we do ripples out into the world. And cultivating this heart, this mind of wisdom and clear seeing, and this heart of metta, is a gift. Thank you. It's time for walking. We'll see you back here at nine.